Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the ShadowSec Cybersecurity Podcast. I am Nima Mihanyar and joining me as always is my partner in crime, a man who just returned from a pleasure trip. He told me he took his mother-in-law to the airport. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jorge de Marca. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello Jorge, how are you doing? Good man, good. There's no, there's no in the greatest in that disgusting phase where it's just really hard to look at. I'm hoping it would just melt away, but let's see. Ah, and uh, up in the north here, uh, the snow is pretty much all gone really? as well. Today we had a nice 15 degrees. But also, I just want to make a note as well for the podcast that uh, contrary to the, the joke at the beginning, Jorge does have a very good relationship with his quote-unquote mother-in-law. So, so I want to, again, uh, welcome all our listeners as well. I hope you all are doing well and staying safe during this time. We have a, a good show packed for you today with a number of interesting stories. And we're also going to include a new segment in today's show where we've dubbed it the Defender's Perspective, where we try to tackle one common threat that defenders may face and give ideas about how they can mitigate that risk and also respond to it effectively. So we uh, we have a update to a story that we were discussing last week in regards to WhatsApp and changes to their terms and conditions in which they were going to be sharing their users' data with Facebook. So it seems that WhatsApp had a change of heart and have decided to delay their rollout of their controversial data sharing until May 15th. This was something that WhatsApp recently disclosed and that they won't be enforcing their new changes to their terms and conditions for another three months. And they actually said that this decision came following, quote unquote, a lot of misinformation about the revision of its privacy policy. So it seems that WhatsApp is delaying the implementation of the changes to their terms and conditions in an effort to be able to change the messaging and to appease the public. Because as we know, they've recently been hemorrhaging users to other platforms such as Telegram and Signal. With Telegram just in the last seven days, noting that they've had 25 million new signups worldwide. And that most likely all comes from WhatsApp. So of course, WhatsApp wants to do all they can to mitigate that loss of users that they're having. It's half a billion users overall with like at least 30 million coming in the last five days. Crazy. Wow. That Crazy. is insane. Wow. Hemorrhaging. And also the reason tying people to WhatsApp is not necessarily the experience or around, oh, everybody else is in WhatsApp. So it's kind of the proposition. So now that that's at risk, it's going to be interesting to see how they maneuver that. At any rate, just so yummy to see that they're backtracking. Oh my God, dude, that that's just made my week. I agree. And Facebook are really going to need to hire some pro PR people to be able to spin this in any way that will help them plug the, the wound that they are currently experiencing right now. I think they legit thought it was a really good time to crank down on the terms and conditions. Like, oh, it's been a lot of time. It was like 2016 when they make, made the purchase and said, hey, opt in, opt out, we'll give you service anyway. And now it's like, oh man, that's a treasure trove. We need to actually tap into that. Now's the time. 
Mm-mm-mm. Exactly. I mean, the amount of data that WhatsApp must contain about people in regards to their personal circumstances and situations is astounding, for sure. If you can obviously tap into that, the idea of targeted advertising, the the level of precision that they would be able to do would be on order of magnitude much higher as well. But at the same time, Facebook must have forgotten or they must have just assumed that since we haven't had a scandal in these last 12 months, people must trust us now. So it's a good time for us to roll out these new changes and they forgot that no matter what facebook is still one of the most mistrusted organizations out there right now um let's jump to our next story shall we and the next story we have comes from security affairs and this is just a public announcement for all of our listeners and it's just that cisco have announced that they are no longer going to release firmware in order to address recent spat of vulnerabilities affecting some of their rv routers which i believe are a small business routers as well so the models affected are the rv 110w the rv 130 the rv 130w and the RV215W. And so these devices have officially reached their end of life. So these devices were actually released in 2011. They reached their consumer end of life in 2017 and 18, but they were still providing paid support for enterprises who were paying for the additional support until December 1st, 2020 which has now obviously elapsed. So these devices are no longer being supported or will receive a firmware in any way whatsoever. The only thing that comes to mind is fair, like super fair. The only thing that I wish would happen is depending on how it affects their strategy, it would be super nice if they actually released some insights into the architecture, firmware, and so on, like proprietary bits to a project like OpenWRT and so on, right? For most of those are actually not officially supported. So I do worry about continuity, but at the same time, it's been like 10 years. Exactly, basically. But it would be good, as you mentioned, actually, and quite rightfully so, if these particular models could be incorporated into a project like OpenWRT so that their owners would still be able to at least find some use for them if those owners aren't prepared to obviously take the security risks of still keeping them operational when the fact that they won't be receiving any more security updates. So our listeners are actually quite likely to want to take control over their household in terms of network. So something to take into account is having a PFSense firewall or some sort of low maintenance essential firewall behind your router could be quite useful because many of the recently happening router compromises actually rely on pawning some device behind your network to then actually set up your router in whatever way they want using default passwords and so on for a typical ISP. So just having several layers of defense there, if you're using that deliberately as your home router, could be quite useful. I don't suppose that in most first world countries, any routers are currently being offered in packages or out of support. But at any rate, if you have one of those and you suspect your ISP is not taking charge of it, just know that there's several layers in which you can actually defend yourself. And again, it would be lovely if Cisco could actually give the community the ability to support it in the future. Completely agree. And the layered approach makes complete sense and is the best approach that you guys can obviously incorporate to protect yourselves. And I do think that that actually is a good shout to Cisco and to all vendors, if any may be listening now or in the future as well, that if you do have any products that you are going to be end of life 
consider actually donating the firmware to the OpenWRT project so that those devices can still be made use of as well. And at the same time, it would, of course, be increasing the available devices that a, a worthwhile project like the OpenWRT can make use of. Then moving on to our next story, it comes from Security Affairs and it's titled Dark Web, Dark Market Seized. And it's regarding the takedown of the world's largest black marketplace on the dark web called Darknet. And it's been taken down after a operation conducted by law enforcement from a number of different countries and with support from Europol. And the figures that they released in regard to the usage that this marketplace has seen were around 500,000 users that were registered, that they had around 2,400 sellers, that they transacted around 320,000 transactions. And through their marketplace, they had around 4,650 Bitcoin go through it and 12,800 Monero were transferred. And they actually mentioned that this particular marketplace was an important point of aggregation for online cyber criminals that traded in all kinds of drugs, counterfeit money, stolen and counterfeit credit cards, anonymous SIM cards and malware as well. And obviously, this type of marketplaces are areas which obviously everyone is discouraged from purchasing items from there because you obviously don't know where it's coming from. And at the same time, the funds that are going to be sent through the services may very well be going to supporting illegal and illicit activities. But just as a side note, people obviously navigating these websites, you're not obviously committing any type of federal or criminal offense by actually being registered to these websites. So anyone who may obviously be getting nervous that the law enforcement will be able to track them down for having visited a website like such as this, they obviously don't need to worry too much because of the fact that simply visiting a website obviously is not a crime by itself. As was obviously highlighted by the fact that in their press release, they did mention that the data that they have obviously seized from the servers of Darknet will give investigators new leads into further investigating moderators, sellers, and buyers. So if you don't obviously fall into any of those categories, then you should be okay. And also, in line with the theme of the Darknet as well, this week we also had another story about Joker Stash, which is actually the dark web's largest marketplace, which is notorious for selling compromised payment card data. And they actually recently also announced plans to shut down their operations on February 15th of this year. And in a message board post posted on a Russian language underground cybercrime forum, the operator of the site, which obviously goes by the name Joker Stash, said that it was time for us to leave forever and that we will never open again. And this was reported by the cybersecurity firm Intel 471. And the news of this imminent shutdown 
by Joker Stash doesn't really come as too much of a surprise in the cyber intelligence community. This is because Joker Stash has recently been having a spat of difficulties these last couple of months. For example, just a couple of weeks after the FBI and Interpol allegedly were able to seize proxy servers that were used in connection with domains that belonged to the site. And also adding to these concerns, they were also having a severe decline in the volume of stolen data that was actually posted to the site. And the data that they did actually post on the site, clients were actually beginning to increasingly complain about the poor quality of that data. So the actual takedowns of these recent marketplaces really does come as no surprise because anyone who obviously monitors the dark web also is aware that marketplaces normally have a lifespan, a couple of years at the most, and they are normally very quickly replaced by other rival marketplaces. So with the takedown of these two marketplaces, the big question within the field is where will obviously all the buyers now and the vendors move to. So now we're going to move on to our final segment, which is the defender's perspective. And for this week's topic, we've decided to focus on BEC or business email compromise. So this is the attack vector that we described last week in which it was actually the one that was generating the most profit for the attackers. And of course, a lot of our listeners would recognize BEC as the traditional attack where an employee who is obviously authorized to make transfers receives a request supposedly from an executive level member and they request transfer of a very large amount of money to a specific a bank account which they have not normally used before and the request normally has a sense of urgency tied to it because obviously the perpetrator would like to get it done as soon as possible so they can pretty much run off with all of your money but obviously as with most things BEC actually comes with a number of different types of attacks so the one that we just described is normally known as the CEO fraud but then you also have invoice frauds as well where the requests appear to come from a known supplier of the business requesting a change to their payment details so in this case they've either compromised the supplier's email system or they're just basically spoofing it and on top of that you also have have, for example, the common compromised email accounts in which the email accounts from maybe inside your network or one of your suppliers is compromised and they basically send out mass emails to everyone in the contact list of the victim. And lastly, you obviously have the attorney scam attack as well in which they pretend to be a representative from a legal firm claiming to be handling confidential matters for your company and they obviously ask for sensitive information or also for the transfer of funds to be made as well and all of these types of attacks normally happen at the end of a work day or a work week and they all obviously entail the sense of urgency because they would prefer you as the victim to not really check what's happening and at the same time have a sense that it's now the end of the week and you just want to go home so you're just going to initiate it and then ask questions when you come back into the office the next day thank you for introducing it that way it's really good that we're really pragmatic and not too academic about bec because frankly it's always the same type of crap right it's it helps to keep two things in mind 
The first is lots of cyber defenders to a degree question, why is BEC cyber incident as opposed to a cyber enabled incident and so on? And that's a topic we will never get into. However, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just thinking through the cyber component of this particular incident. So we have loss of confidentiality quite often, which is of course concerning to the security defender. And then we also have an operational disruption because we lost possession or confidentiality of data. That's something we can all get behind, hopefully. And also the underpinning of all of these attacks are A, information disclosure, B, sense of urgency, as you were saying, right? So it's all about, I know how your business flow works, I know what mail typically gets sent. I also know, you know, the purposes for which email gets sent here and there. I even have hold of documents and at formats and forms and things like this that give me additional credibility. And my goal is to get the business analyst to not think, but rather do whatever based on impulse or based on a sense of urgency, etc. Right. So at no point does the attacker want the business analyst to question the transaction. They want to have their eye on the price and just do whatever's best for the company interests with information he has, right? So as you broke down all of those, I think something else to consider is, has there been an account takeover or not, right? So account takeover is another of the big variables within BEC. Uh, This can be a local or a partner account takeover. Uh, If there's an account takeover, it's a lot more complex sprawling and will lead to further consequence. If there's no account takeover, it's all about mitigating the incidence of that particular social engineering attempt or any others that have happened over time and have gone, for whatever reason, undetected. So I do think that determining whether there has been account takeover or not as you mentioned, is one of the imperative things that you need to do. Because obviously, when it comes to a BEC attack, a spoofed attack is much easier for your security teams, your employees, and your security tools to be able to block rather than an actual compromise of an actual account within your company or within that of a supplier company as well. Because obviously, these attackers rely heavily on social engineering techniques to actually pull off this type of attack. Detection itself is very difficult away from basic employee awareness and a good understanding of what the actual attack entails. But if attack is obviously spoofed in nature, then it's much easier for employees to actually notice because many companies obviously include within their cyber awareness training the fact that employees should always be checking the domain and make sure they're spelled correctly as well. Well, in fact, I think most awareness programs are basically fish, anti-phishing programs. Like, what, what else are they actually giving people tools to defend against? I think phishing is still such low-hanging fruit, low-effort, high-impact type situation where it's the focus of most awareness campaigns. So that's, that's a good shout. Something I'm hoping for this segment is to give the listeners a template to think through response, right? So it's very important to have a planning mindset when you deal with incidents in general. Incidents have a close timeline, a goal, or a set of objectives, a team to do it, and a time frame, at least an aspirational time frame. That puts us in a highly structured work mode where we need to know where to commit resources, regardless of the nature of the incident. In this case, for example, non-job one is establishing the type of compromise and the targets. Has there been account takeover? Yes or no? When did the first instance of this happen? What was the outcome? What is known about the timeline of the messaging? 
So those questions need to get answered right away. The reality of the matter is most often the perfect individual to answer those is a single person or maybe a small team of business analysts who are deeply acquainted with the process. So a defender team needs to commit some time to first reconstruct the timeline of messaging and observe the techniques employed to fool the business analyst in question. So as Nima was saying, it could be that there's a remote takeover of a partner account. Remote takeover is confusing wording. Maybe a better way to put it is you have trust on your third-party partner with which you conduct business, which means you trust them to keep their state secure, which means if an email comes from their domain, it is trusted by default by people working in your organization. And that is fair. So as Nima was saying as well, when there's an account takeover on the part of your business partner or your third-party provider, you will not see any technical indicators that will tell you that is social engineering, which means uh, in that particular scenario, you're relying on the anomaly detection capability of the business analyst working that process to tell you what went wrong or what was the red flag, why wasn't it caught, and so on. At any rate, the outcome for this particular milestone is timeline of messaging, so all known rogue messages and responses, tactic employed, so what type of social engineering is it? Is it a spoofed address where they used an edit distance or typo squatting attack to impersonate visually the submitter address and fool your employee? Or was it takeover of a remote account, which then led to a normal looking incoming email, right? That that's the technique side of things. Also, things to touch upon are, have there been attachments? Do we have any indication? So in the case where there's no local account takeover, is there an indication that they are in possession of documents that are proprietary to that business process, right? So do they have a PDF to go off of when they forge a PDF that they're using for their scam? Or do they know the data points that your business analyst team require to perform a transaction and so on and so forth? So to summarize, as you determine the type of compromise in the targets, you should have established the techniques, whether there's a local or a foreign account takeover and the timeline of messaging. So that's a really good first milestone as you triage BEC. And I agree as well with all the points that you mentioned. And for victim's sakes, I do hope that it's mostly a spoofed attack rather than actual compromise attack, because obviously with spoofed attacks, it's a little bit easier to manage because at least you don't have the additional headache of worrying about an actual network compromise happening. And the only thing in the event of a successful transfer that you really need to do is obviously contact your financial institution so they can immediately start the process of contacting any partner institutions that they need to do so in order to start a process of recovery of your funds because normally with those there is a time limit that they need to do because the attackers normally attempt to get the money into their accounts and then very quickly send it off to mule accounts to basically clean and to be able to run away with your money. Also, in the point of if you do unfortunately have an actual email compromise as well of your network, then as as Jorge was mentioning as well, you really should in that situation consider all of the data and documents that were actually held within that user's account to have also been considered compromised as well. So you should always obviously consider a worst case scenario as well. And in that situation, engage as soon as possible your legal and complaint 
compliance teams to be able to understand what regulatory requirements you may have to fulfill. And then basically in that situation, you're going to be moving or pivoting into a standard network breach response scenario in which you're going to be checking the user's activities. You're going to be checking to make sure that there hasn't been any other anomalous activity happening as well. Or in the situation where you're only dealing with the fact that the perpetrator may have got access only to the user's email account rather than any other network resources as well. Then in that situation, you also have to review all of the messages that have been sent by this user and consider a review of their colleagues' inboxes as well, just to make sure that any of them have not also been a victim or fallen for the same type of attack. Certainly. So let's cover off account takeover. From a purely pragmatic point of view, in the case of BEC, if there's been an attack, an account takeover, it is most likely that the takeover was limited to the account just because these are highly specialized uh, actors that are after forging transactions, right? So that's something to keep in mind. That's not a fact. It's just a trend that you can keep in mind. If there's a local account compromise, then as Nima said, you have a compromise assessment to, to undertake. So just to back up as we work through the playbook. So you've determined the timeline, the type of compromise, the targets of the compromise, and you know what techniques they use to fool your employees. As you determine whether there was an account compromise or not, if there is an account compromise, then you have an additional issue of, I need to do a discovery exercise, both in the account and also on the identity level in your network, right? So Nima touched on both. How, how do you get either done? So the first of them is you must onboard the inboxes known to have been compromised locally to an e-discovery tool. Or hopefully within your email stack, you have a discovery accelerator tool or a native e-discovery platform where you can actually index so you can create a vert view of the data present in that inbox. Often companies have AIP or some sort of tagging framework for their email. So that also helps because all email should be tagged for the broad strokes confidentiality requirements. So in order to construct an, an accurate picture of the contents of the email, there's tools that can help. Luckily, as I was saying, you can use a discovery accelerator tool that is native to your platform. But if not a tool, the many forensic e-discovery platforms that are out there, I don't want to mention any of them because most good defenders or aspiring defenders either have or can get a hold of the information. But a feature that all of them has is the ability to index a PST or whatever format for your email platform, the possibility of deduplicating conversations. You can actually look at the messaging flow in a unique manner. So you don't have to go through threads that have been made unreadable by terrible email clients, which is every email client out there. So essentially there's an ease coverage job to be done on a local mailbox or mailboxes. Yeah. Uh, on the other side, you have a re reconnaissance exercise where you have access logs from your VPN, you have access logs from your Active Directory authorization infrastructure. So that those are your Kerberos logs, those are your local Windows logs. So ma many logs will contain authorization requests that have been granted. So you need to understand whether that pattern looks good for your user, right? I would say in terms of urgency, the task of enumerating the messaging timeline overall, determining whether an account takeover is reasonable, determining the techniques used for social engineering, 
and doing e-discovery on the local mailbox, should there have been an account compromise on either side, are the most critical tracks. So it's really important in the case of BEC to have very tight priorities and an an investigation response action plan that takes into account what absolutely must be done, because it's likely that this type of attack will compound or come on top of other attacks, and you need to start managing the workload of your team. So it isn't as easy when you have several concurrent incidents as opposed to when you have one. So as we talked about the priorities, what other things should the business be doing? So we've only spoken about what you are doing, so what your team is doing. The business has a lot to do, and you touched upon a couple of things that they could already be doing, right? So first of all, do they have a native way of stopping the money? By native, I mean if it's scam on Swift or a scam on some sort of payment scheme, etc. All of those have actual long-standing processes to stop money or question a transaction or nullify it or take it back, etc. So Is that available to them? That's something that they likely do anyway, but it's good to keep appraised of what you're doing. The other thing is, does insurance apply should a loss already be incurred? Often, so I hope a lot of you are working for enterprises that can lose six digits and sort of notice three days later. That must be amazing. Those are privileged people. Yeah. So in that (laughs) case, it it could be that some of the transactions cannot be stopped because there's a time limit, as Nima was saying. For those, it's important to understand whether insurance in place would cover such a scenario. Of course, the network of the business teams victimized here is kind of the most important factor in how quickly they can hit the ground running, and cyber defenders have very little to do here. But it is good to give a holistic outlook on how you're mitigating exposure as well. So I do think that in regards to this, an e-discovery solution is paramount and key because as anyone who has actually had experience in analyzing users, a PST or emails uh, can attest to, there is a lot of them. And having a tool that can obviously ingest all of that and allow you to do keyword searches is paramount to be able to shift through all of the noise that will be in there as well. So you can actually hone in on the key conversations conversations and the key points that you need for your investigation. But with that actually being said as well, moving on to sort of maybe the mitigation strategies that companies can also take in regards to this in relation to an attack, which obviously focuses more on a financial fraud and enticing your users to actually initiate fraudulent transactions. In those situations, of course, awareness is the key. So educating your employees to make sure that they know what to look for as well and to also to empower them to be able to uh, question and request clarification from senior managers as well. So there shouldn't be obviously a, a culture in which an employee may feel that due to their position, they shouldn't really contact the CEO or the CFO directly to ask for clarification on certain things. They should obviously always instigate a don't trust but verify policy as well and of course just basically to use in some cases common sense as well so if you are receiving a request from the ceo to transfer a large amount of money on a friday night and they are obviously insinuating that it has to be done as soon as possible just ask yourself why and why now 
and don't be afraid to obviously reach out to them or your corresponding line manager to ask for clarification and a confirmation that this is what we should be doing. And also companies should obviously have a secondary verification step for amounts above a certain amount of money. So for example, a transfer of 1 million or higher should always have a two-step verification process where two people need to verify that. And in the case of it actually being more related to a data compromise in which the perpetrator's end goal is actually still confidential information, then in that situation, you of course have to consider that all the information within the account has always been compromised and work very closely with your compliance and legal teams to identify what your responsibilities are and also what type of notifications you need to create and send out out to your potentially impacted customers. Yeah, something we, we should have mentioned along with eDiscovery was bringing in the data privacy office, or whatever the equivalent that is for your company. I think you mentioned as well, bringing in legal and compliance, but in reality, normally those teams are structured in such a way that is very data-centric for most places like financial institutions or anywhere like this that has access to lots of money. <laughs> so, so in reality, there should be a data privacy office type setup where there's actually a notification, an event management process, because that's also a regulatory matter, right? So normally the European Central Bank or whatever central bank or financial institution applies to your jurisdiction, they should have some requirements in terms of event detection, escalation, triage, and reporting within XYZ timelines. And they should also be appraised as to the timelines, right? So just to summarize this particular step, because you touched on so much that is so important. Right. So, of course, involve DPO or if in your company that's legal, it's like a one-man show, that's fine. Involve whomever you need to involve. Right. Find that it, it is your responsibility to find it out and get that information. Right. Second, extremely important, a trust but verified policy for this particular campaign and in general. That should be advised as part of your lessons learned. So trust and verify should be native to the technology, to be honest, but often it isn't. Often people conduct business over phone calls, over email and so on which is part of the problem, right? Often people even duplicate functionality of their platforms over email out of laziness. So that should definitely be in your lessons learned. But trust and verify, as Nima was saying, is, is extremely important. As we put all of it together, there will come a time where you will be expected to weigh in to that decision as to when do we cut off the attackers? Because normally BEC is reported. Normally the victims have engaged in some way with the attacker, right? Normally there's some sort of impact, but then you are in control of what you do as you either cut them off completely, I mean the attackers, right? Or you get maximum intelligence from the exchanges that are already ongoing, only to then cut off the attacker. Right. So, of course, from the money transfers perspective, hopefully the attacker is absolutely cut off. Uh, it really depends. I don't want to get too much into it because it's a bit of a universe and everybody does their thing. But you should have a cohesive strategy for the next few days as you work through closing down the communication mechanism with the attacker in ways that give you more information rather than less. So this is where account takeover versus non-account takeover comes into play. Sometimes you might be in doubt as to who exactly got compromised. Because normally, right now, we're being a bit simplistic in the sense that only to focus on defending BEC, we have contemplated a scenario where there's one attacker and one victim. 
But often with BEC, what you see is that you have central hotspots that are being attacked. Like, for example, a consultancy firm doing, you know, providing services to several companies of X type. So, for example, the company doing the invoices for a lot of construction companies or maybe a supplier of highly advanced parts for medical companies, etc. Right. So often you will not know who exactly and to what extent they got compromised. And if you can actually leak information from your attackers, and this is something your business team should be able to tell to what extent is possible or interesting as you work through your long-term eradication and recovery strategy. Okay, so, so then with that in mind, and you should explore that to a pragmatic degree. There's no recipe or formula or, or, or standard to do it. A few things to keep in mind. In the case where there has been a local account compromise, the data privacy angle should be pursued. The account should have their password rotated. The account should be killed off if it shouldn't exist. So all the typical containment measures for a compromised identity should be taken. On the other hand, if there's a foreign account compromise, disclosure comes into play. So this is where your relationship ownership is important, right? So who owns the relationship with the third party? You should leverage them to let know the foreign company responsibly that we suspect that you have been breached. This is also the point where you bring legal. So regardless of whether DPO within your company is tied to legal or not, I mean directly as in the same team, you should bring in legal to understand the contract that you have with that third party and the implications of known breaches on that third party. It could be that the contract is giving you lots of incident response provisions, often called the cyber clause, that put them in a position where they need to provide you with forensic evidence of the extent of the compromise and so on. This is very common for schemes under PCI control. So normally PCI itself, which of course governs payment cards and the infrastructure dealing with payment cards and payment card processing companies. So there's very clear guidelines as to the forensic obligation in that case. So always take into account the contract and the scheme under which your business analysts are operating and what advantages do you have in terms of their obligations to provide insights to the extent of their compromise. Because that will give you, again, a lot more information as to how much of your data is out of control in that situation. Something else to do, and now we're past the point of we have enough intel, we understand the extent of the compromise enough, we have disclosed it responsibly. There's also the matter of if on the flip side, you're in a type of squat scenario where there's no local account compromise or potentially no foreign account compromise, you should put detections in place that deal with edit distance attacks like type of squatting. So you should you should be able to at least do a look back and understand when email addresses appear in your flow logs that should not exist. So a one instead of an I, etc. There's frameworks out there like DNS twist, etc. that can actually generate the candidates for type of squatting for you. And you of course can get the valuable accounts. So the, the, the perceived business value and criticality of those accounts and you can marry those two to create tactical detection. Or even you can bring your business partners from the non-security side to take a look at their own logs and flow logs and tell you, oh, that shouldn't be there, etc. That's very typical for legacy systems and the SMEs that are not integrated into typical security monitoring. All they do all day is look at those logs. So there's no reason why your business partners shouldn't be looking at the metadata they generate. Of course, as long as that is authorized within the policy, it's compliant with local regulation and so on, right? Uh, a lot of the awareness work is geared towards people being vigilant. There's also proactivity to be had in that vigilance. Also, this is relevant to 
local, foreign, and non-account compromise. DMARC policy is key, especially in this day and age. So it's very important to have a handle on your posture when your SPF policy gets abused and how those DMARC reports go, to who they go, and so on. It's important to enforce that your partners have good SPF and DMARC hygiene as well. So a lot of the compromises that are trivial and do not entail an account compromise can be flat out eliminated or mitigated to a big degree with just proper DMARC policy, which of course builds on your SPF, right? So that's one thing to take into account. It's often hard to get defenders to understand the importance of looking at the DMARC reporting for your domains above specific thresholds. Even if you're not addressing it, I think that's something that should be the subject of a conversation and a decision be made proactively to either consume or not consume that stream of information that is very often neglected. So Nima, I, I suppose the last thing to mention is this will recur. <laughs> These attacks are not that sophisticated. The tactics often are underwhelmingly not sophisticated. I hope our listeners have gotten a lot of useful information. I hope that the pain you guys feel obviously from this type of attack won't be too great as well. And obviously you guys shouldn't get complacent and think that because it hasn't happened to you already, that it won't happen to you in the future. Assume that eventually it will and be sure to be prepared and plan accordingly. So make sure you have defined processes or a playbook in place so your teams know how to respond should this type of situation occur because that would obviously reduce the headache and the pain that your teams and your business will feel in regard to this. And also make sure that you understand very clearly your financial institution's process for reporting financial losses and how you can go about to actually redeem any funds that may have been lost through a fraudulent request. And make sure that your cyber teams also have a good and strong relationship with the legal and compliance folks as well. I know a in a lot of companies, the cyber team likes to be a little bit apart from their legal counterparts. But in this type of situations, it's imperative that they have a strong working relationship so that they can effectively share information, which will ultimately lead to a much more smooth resolution to these type of attacks. So I think BC as our first topic for the Defender's Perspective segment was a really good one as well. And we will obviously be having different topics in future segments. But if any of our listeners do have any other suggestions or ideas in regards to how they would also tackle BEC, then by all means, do feel free to reach out to us as well on Twitter. And also, you can also contact Jorge and me at nima at shadowsec.com and Jorge at Jorge at shadowsec.com as well with your ideas for how you tackle BEC and also uh, for any future topics on the Defenders Perspective segment. So I think uh, with all of that, that wraps up another episode of the ShadowSec Cybersecurity Podcast. So from Jorge and I, we want to wish you guys a good day and a good week. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye-bye.